Muslims. I don't know that for sure, but I suspect that it's the case, as it seems to be. <clears throat> but we've spent a little time in Ephesians 6, and along with Revelation 2 and 3 recently. And I want to go back to Ephesians 6 and pick up one <clears throat> or two verses here, <clears throat> because it can be a launching point into something that I think is very important for all of us to be thinking about right now. And that is in verse 16 of Ephesians 6. Now here he's talking about Satan and his demons and the principalities and powers that we come up against. And then he talks about the armor of God, which I mentioned again last week. And in verse 16 he says, Above all, considering the armor that we need, uh, taking the shield of faith, wherewith you shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked, or the wicked one. So there, Satan is always throwing arrows at us, or shooting arrows at us, even before the throne of God, <clears throat> because he is there, <clears throat> excuse me, as the accuser of the brethren. And he will shoot us down, given any opportunity. So, he says, take on the shield of faith. I want to put a couple of verses with that. One is in Luke 18. Luke 18. And verse 8. Well, let's start in verse 7. And shall not God avenge His own elect, which cry day and night to Him, though He bear long with them? So there is a long period of time, and God has to bear with us and stay with us a long time. But doesn't it say that God will avenge His elect someday? So there's a promise implied there in verse 7. Verse 8, I tell you that He will avenge them speedily. Nevertheless, or in spite of this statement, when the Son of Man comes, shall he find faith on the earth? Now, there's an implied promise there that God is going to avenge his own elect. It may seem like a long time, but he says, really, it's speedily. But at the same time, in spite of being encouraged and told that, and us trusting in that, a question is posed. When he comes, will he find faith on the earth? And the question is asked because in spite of promises God might make, people have trouble believing him, and therefore they lack faith. So faith is apparently going to be a very rare commodity on the earth. And I do believe that it is a very rare commodity among God's people. We all struggle to have faith, trust, belief, encouragement, and hope in God, don't we? We look around at things around us, and it becomes very difficult. 1 Corinthians 13, I won't go there, but that's the what is called often the love chapter. And it says at the end of it that 
There's faith, hope, and love, these three. And the greatest of these is love. Now, why is that? Well, love has to do with our relationship with God and mankind. And love is something that will always be. will always be a need for that throughout all eternity. Faith is a temporary thing. And that makes it, in that sense, less valuable than love. Hope is a temporary thing. There is coming a time when we will not need faith or hope anymore because the things that we hope for, the things that we put faith in, will be here. And therefore, those emotions, those things we struggle with today in having hope and having faith will no longer even be an issue. Not something you will need or desire. Isn't it strange in a way? But some of the biggest things we struggle with today that we need so desperately will not even be a passing thought once they are fulfilled. Once we are in the kingdom of God, once we are spirit and have life within ourselves, we will not need faith and hope because we will have entered that time where there are no tears, no sorrow, no suffering, no problems in our lives. So faith and hope, out the window, no longer needed. But we'll always need to love each other. So that has to go on and on and never end. So that makes it, and there are other reasons as well, but that makes love predominant above the other two in that essence or that sense alone. Now I want to go to... Hebrews 11 for a moment. Hebrews 11, and beginning in verse 1. Well, let's go back to verse 38 first of, of chapter 10. Now the just shall live by faith. If we're to be just, if we're to be righteous, if we're to be godly, then it says that we shall live by faith. It is very important we understand what faith is, what it entails, how you go about living in faith, how it translates into everyday life. Then he says, but if any man draw back, my soul shall have no pleasure in him. But we are not of them who draw back toward perdition or the lake of fire, destruction, but of them that believe to the saving of the soul. So he's saying here that faith is an extremely important criteria in determining whether we will live forever in the kingdom of God or whether we will go into perdition or into nothingness forevermore. That makes it... A very salvational issue, does it not? Faith is required for salvation. In fact, we used to have a booklet in Worldwide Church of God entitled, What Kind of Faith is Required for Salvation? And in that, it stressed that it was living, active faith 
that is evidenced by our works, our deeds, our lives, as opposed to just a belief or a thought that is in our mind. And that it is the living, active faith that will lead us to salvation, not dead faith, based on what? Hope or that I've done been born again, or something of that nature. Now, if we see that it is important to salvation in verses 38 and 39 of chapter 10, then what is it? I'll bet some of you are beginning to think that this is going to be a sermon about faith. But it's not. This is an introduction, and I think it's important we understand this before we get to the subject at hand, and it certainly is interrelated. Chapter 11, verse 1. Now, faith is, here is a definition. Faith is the substance of things hoped for. It's the reality of the things that you hope for. What do we hope for? What do human beings, even apart from God, hope for? Asians, Africans, uh, South Americans, Americans. If they do not know God at all. If they're atheists, what do they hope for? People, apart from religion, hope for long life. They hope for good health. They hope for security, wealth, uh, peace and happiness in their families and among their friends, acceptance by others in the community. Those are very basic human desires, apart from religion, that have been built in us from creation. Now, we understand that those basic human desires and needs family, children, friends, can be translated into something bigger and longer lasting, don't we? That it's not just the physical and temporary here where we desire those things, but we desire them in greater abundance and greater fulfillment in the future. Not just long life, but life eternal. Not just good health, but perfect health. Not just security, but eternity. Not just to be liked or accepted, but loved and made a part of. And an unending friendship and love that will always be there. Eternal relationships, in other words. We can have friends and mates and various things in this earth, but it's very limited in time span and scope. Friends come, friends go. And in this society, mates come and mates go. So it's transitory, but they're the very basic things that people hope for and wish and desire and think about a great deal of their waking time, are the issues that we have just discussed. Faith is the substance of God's promises behind all those emotions, feelings, and desires that we have. God tells us we can have all those things in abundance and forever if we will do what? serve Him, obey Him, trust Him, believe in Him, that He will provide all those things for us, not just now, 
but forevermore. So there is a substance, a reality, a basis for hope. You know, we have all wished for things and hoped for things that we knew were probably impossible that we would never have, haven't we? Some of the things you desire and hope for are perhaps obtainable. And you see maybe a way to make them reality. Some things are in the realm of fantasy, <laughs> frankly. These things we desire that just simply will never occur in this lifetime. So we have this whole book here, purportedly written by one who has lived forever and always will, who says that he can make the things that would otherwise be fantasy actually come to pass. So we need to live in a realistic world. There are people on earth today who are essentially dreamers and fantasizers who will never get off their lazy behinds and fulfill their hopes and dreams and desires. And there are others who are more practical and pragmatic and who will get up, formulate a plan, and work out a way to actually accomplish some of the things that they wish for and hope for. So there are thinkers and dreamers and there are doers. And we all fall somewhere in that spectrum. But God gives us a substance. Now, the problem with that is this. It's the evidence of things not seen. You don't see the kingdom of God. You can look through the best telescopes on earth and you won't see the sea of glass and the throne of God and the 24 elders singing hallelujah to God. He has not put it in such a way that we can do that. So he tells us of it. Now, there is a certain substance, however, because he tells us in Romans 1, that we can see Him by the things that He has made. So, the creation around us, the skies, the sunsets, the sunrises, the birds, the beasts, the trees, the flowers, the water, the air we breathe, are evidence that there is a God, and that those things could not have existed otherwise. So, He doesn't expect us to believe in absolutely nothing, does He? He put things here, and he said even our bodies are fearfully and wonderfully made. One of the biggest testimonies to his existence is a human being. Because our systems are so closely related and interactive and dependent upon each other, and it is a highly technical <coughs> body that we have, highly technical. Now, faith is easy to talk about. 
hard to obtain. And in spite of all that has been written, all that has been created, all that has been promised, it is very, very difficult, and in fact so difficult, to live by faith that God has said it will be very, very rare when Christ returns. Now the antithesis of faith, the antonym, or the opposite of faith, is what? Fear. Notice in the context about the salvational importance of faith, and fear is mentioned. Those who draw back. Why do people draw back? Once a child touches a stove, the next time he approaches that stove, you might try to get him to put his hand up there on top of the stove, but he will draw it back, won't he? Because he has learned fear of heat on a stove. Now, people draw back primarily because they are afraid. Now, if we draw back from salvation out of fear, we have a problem. So fear becomes very, very important to deal with and know what to do with, how to handle it. Fear is based on really two things. What you might lose and what you might not gain. We fear losing what we have and we fear not getting what we want. <clears throat> and those fears are sometimes reasonable. Sometimes they are unreasonable. There are all kinds of fears. We fear the known, and we fear the unknown. We feel things, or fear things that are real, things that are imagined. There's a very common expression that 90% of the things you fear or worry about won't happen anyway. That's not much consolation to a worrier. Because it's not that 90% they're worried about, it's the 10%. I think that that is a very generous percentage anyway. For people who worry a lot <clears throat> and live in fear... I would say that probably it's more like 99% of the things you worry about and fear will never happen. Because you can worry yourself sick over things that will not occur, could not occur, or might occur. And it's the might that gets you in trouble. Worry, of course, is based in fear. And there are a lot of worriers. <clears throat> there are people who self-describe themselves as worry warts. They worry about everything. They're fearful of almost anything. They fear planes, trains, and automobiles. They fear being alone. They fear being with people. They fear public speaking. They fear life. A lot of people are afraid of life. 
They won't do much because they're afraid of what could happen. They're afraid to do business because they're afraid of failure. <clears throat> they're afraid that things won't transpire the way they wish. A lot of people have good ideas, but they never get them to the ground because they're scared that it will fail. So, some people fear life and the things in life. All the things that could or might happen. And at the same time, they fear life, they also fear death. People will do almost anything to stay alive. They fear dying so badly that they will let a pharmaceutical or a medical profession do almost unimaginable things to their bodies to keep them alive for another month, six months, two, three years, because we fear to die. But then sometimes we fear so much to live that we'll take our own life. Life is probably the strongest drive in us to live. So people will go to any lengths to live. They'll kill other people in order to live. Whole nations will kill other whole nations if possible in order to maintain their own peace, security, and life. Will they not? How can you fear life and yet at the same time fear death so greatly? And then fear the consequences of life so much that you will take your own life, which is the deepest desire you have in you, is to live. It's incredible, isn't it? We fear little things and we fear big things. I guess what I'm saying is fear is one of the commonest emotions that people have. We fear each other. We fear to say something because we might offend someone, hurt their feelings, or they might not like we say, what we say or might not respect what we say or disagree with it and argue with us about it. We fear so much. And it starts early. I remember sitting in a movie theater when I was, I don't know how old, pretty young, and there was a little girl sitting beside me. And I just thought it'd be the neatest thing there ever was if I could hold her hand. But you know, I was scared to death to reach over there and, and take her hand in mine. I was afraid she'd pull it back. I was afraid she'd slap me. I don't know what all I was afraid of, but I was really scared. I'll admit it today. And then I got so scared to reach over there and take her hand that I began to sweat. And then I was afraid, I don't know, I guess I was afraid I'd be so, my hand would be so wet and slip off of hers. So I'm sitting over there trying to quietly dry my hand on my pants so it wouldn't be sweaty when I grabbed hers. Now there's a lot to fear, isn't there? She's probably sitting there, when are you going to do it already? You know, I don't know what she was thinking. I don't even remember if I took her hand. I don't even remember that. I don't know. But I do remember the fear of doing so. 
So the fear overrode whatever pleasure I did or didn't get from actually grabbing her hand. I don't know how old I was. I'll say eight. Might have been twelve. I don't remember. have no idea. But I remember the fear. I remember in college a girl that I knew was a close friend. And there was a reason or two in my mind that I didn't want to take it beyond that, but we were very good friends, had a lot of good times together, laughed, joked, played around. But one day we went on a field trip, been on the bus for hours, and I was sitting with her, and we'd been having a good time singing and laughing and, and, and so on. And then he got quiet toward the end of the day, getting late at night, and she reached over and took my hand. And she said, I want you. Do you, can you, now that was fairly aggressive for a girl, and I have no problem with that. In fact, I admire and respect her in some respects for being that way. Well, she overcame her fear and asked for what she wanted. She wanted to marry me. That's what she was saying. Now, I'm standing here recounting the story of me being so scared to the point of sweating to take a little girl's hand. And what did she go through before making that statement and taking that action? That had built up probably for months or even a year or two. I don't know. But you know what I did? I dropped her hand. I didn't let her pursue it. Now, all that fear that she had had and trepidation in doing that ended in rejection. And you know, that had to hurt. That had to really hurt her emotions and feelings. We went on being friends, but I didn't say anything. She didn't say anything beyond that. Maybe I shouldn't tell these personal stories. Maybe once in a while they help. Because I'm trying to get to us the implications and how far fear can go. And how it can be over simple things or very complicated things. Every human being lives with fear every day that goes by. There is not a day that you don't fear something because it is such an emotional mix. I want to go back to where fear first began with human beings. Let's go to Genesis 3. Anything really important, as Herbert Armstrong often said, always goes back to Genesis, the first chapters of Genesis. And since fear is such an overweening problem with human beings, and we fear so many, many different things, We need to understand it. We need to learn how to deal with it. We need to learn how to overcome it. Now, I say overcome it, because fear isn't always bad, is it? Fear can be a very, very positive thing. Are you fearful of driving a car 130 miles an hour? Probably so. If you're not on a racetrack and are not used to it, is that a well-founded fear? You betcha. 
Well, fear can be a good thing. But it can also be a very, very bad, evil, deleterious, troubling thing that can keep you from achieving happiness, peace, joy, and the goals that you have in life and the afterlife. So we need to deal with both the good and the bad side of fear. I think you can see by these introductory comments that this is a major, major issue. The right and wrong use of fear. Now let's see in Genesis 3, the creation of mankind and of the earth had occurred. And here, the earth as we know it at least, whether it was, has been here for billions of years or whether it was just recreated or not, is another question and certainly non-salvational, the need for our understanding begins in Genesis 1. At the time, the earth came to be what it is today, or what it came to be as beautiful, and then what it has come to be today since then. So, here's where the important stuff for us begins. Not the study of when creation occurred. But when man was put on earth, our history... And our future are the key elements. Now, you can study when creation occurred if you want to, and it's okay, but it isn't really that important in the bigger scheme of things. It's an issue I'm not going to spend a lot of time on. I've seen indications both directions. So let's pick it up here where it begins to matter to us. So they had been there. They were given a certain... Uh, instruction from God that they could eat, they could be married to each other, that being husband and wife was a good thing. And notice in verse 25, they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. So there they were, stark, raving, buck naked, and they were not ashamed, they were not afraid, didn't bother them in the least. Now, Today we have a fear, do we not, of appearing in public naked? Have not we all at one time or another probably dreamed that we were naked in public and, and scared us in our dream half to death? They show it in movies once in a while, somebody's naked, gets caught in the shower or whatever. And men have an advantage there. they got two hands to cover one place. Women got two hands to try to cover three. But there's a certain fear and a certain shame that is there of being suddenly exposed naked. Why? Adam and Eve weren't that way. God Himself could have walked in the garden and had, and they weren't a bit ashamed or scared or frightened or trying to cover themselves. That was perfectly normal to them. No problem. They were not ashamed. But, however, the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the eternal God had made. The serpent referring to Satan, and he is very subtle. He has ways of approaching us to cause us to do things or think things that we might not otherwise think except for his influence. But he is very smart, very intelligent, very subtle in the way he can go about it. And he can have you before you know he's got you. So here, he appears on the scene. 
And he said to the woman, Yes, God has said you shall not eat of every tree of the garden. Right? Question mark after it. I, I agree with you that God has said this. Do you agree with this? So he gets her saying yes immediately. Yeah, that's what he said. I agree with that. Sure. You're, you, you, got, you, you nailed that one. First thing he says was something she would say yes to. Every boy that has ever chased a girl has spent much time with his opening lines trying to figure out what to say first. He wants to be able to introduce himself or say something in such a way that she will agree and say yes. And once he can get her to saying yes, he wants to keep her there. If she says no to the first thing he says, then it gets grim and it becomes much more difficult. Satan's smarter than any boy you ever encountered. And he got Eve to saying yes first. There's a lot of instruction here, girls. And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden. So she begins to repeat what he just said. Yeah, you're right about that. However, he did tell us one thing. But of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat of it, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Now, she didn't really know what death was. I think that will become apparent here. She didn't grasp it, didn't understand it, was probably not much afraid of it. It was something beyond her. It's something she'd never seen, never experienced. The serpent said to the woman, You shall not surely die. Now, there's an absolute contradiction of what God had said. Well, God said I'd die, and this guy says I won't. Now, which one do I want to believe? Well, I'd rather believe I won't die. You know, there are a lot of things that you face in life, whether it's parasailing or parachuting or bungee jumping, where you weigh whether you will live or die. And you want to live. You want thrill and you want excitement, but you'd prefer to live when the excitement and thrill was over, wouldn't you? You know the roller coasters once in a while go off the track. But most of the time they stay on, don't they? Most of the time. So you'll weigh that and you think, well, this thing goes round and round over and over and over. Nothing will probably happen this time. So you weigh the chances. And you overcome that little bit of fear because you know that the math is in your favor. So you go for it. Now, Russian roulette is more like a one in six instead of a one in ten billion chance. And I doubt that many here have ever played Russian roulette. You know, where you take a revolver and there's six cylinders and you put one in and people get high or get drunk up or whatever they get. I don't know. And they'll spin that cylinder and then they'll put it to their head and pull the trigger. And their chances are only one in six of dying. That's pretty good, isn't it? Five-sixths of the time they live. Stupid. But people do it. So there are many, many things that we consider the odds on, don't we? Whether it's safe, whether we'll live, or whether we might experience a thrill and then die. So, he says, you shall not surely die. Well, that's good news to her. She says, I don't want to die. 
if she even understood what it was. For God does know. They says, well, you know, God knows something here. So he quotes God as an authority. Pretty subtle. For God does know that in the day that you eat thereof, then your eyes shall be open and you shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. Now, there's a great deal of truth in what he said. They would come to know the difference between good and evil. To this point, they had only experienced good. They were living in perfect peace, perfect harmony, perfect everything. They did not know or had ever even experienced the negative emotion. That's beyond my comprehension and yours. Because we've all experienced so many negative emotions in our lives. We deal with them. We live with them every day. There is not one of you who does not have a negative emotion sometime during the day. And it might be a million, <laughs> not just one. But they had never had one. Oh, you'll know the difference between good and evil. That's kind of appealing. I'd like to know what's good and what's evil. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree to be desired to make one wise, she began to look at all the elements of eating of that tree that might be good. You know, when you're tempted to do something that you wonder about, or you're trying to be talked into, you go through all kinds of reasoning. And you want to see why this is something that would be a good thing for you to do. So you're trying to talk yourself into it. Now, Satan got her to thinking that way, to letting not just him, but her talk herself into it with reasoning. So it appealed to her desires. Look good. A tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof and did eat, and gave also to her husband with her, and he did eat. So he says, I'm not going into this thing by myself. You know, there have been times when you said, I'll go if you'll go. Let's go swimming. Oh, it's too cold for me. I'll go if you go. A lot of things we come to that where we are depending on someone else and we want their strength to go with ours in order to overcome whatever fear it might be to do whatever it is that we have at hand. Whether it's something like cold water to swim in or a plethora of other things. Now the eyes of them both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. Now they were naked before and completely comfortable with it. They were not even aware of what nakedness was. Now suddenly, oops, we're naked. Now it was only them around, just the two of them. They were married. But even being married, this was a new sensation, a new feeling, a new emotion entirely. They'd never considered nakedness before. And with that came a sense of shame. They sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. <clears throat> they were so ashamed and so fearful of suddenly being naked, that they looked around and says, oh, what can we do? 
Well, let's see, I'll reach for this fig leaf and I'll put one here and I'll reach for another one and I'll sew it together. We'll get ourselves covered up here somehow, some way. It inspired that much fear and shame in them. And then they heard the voice of the eternal God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his, and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the eternal God amongst the trees of the garden. Why did they hide themselves? They had come to experience the emotion of fear. You hide when you're afraid. When you're ashamed. And shame is based in fear. When we do something that we would not any, want anyone else to know about, if we are in danger of being discovered, we get ashamed and fearful. And it's not a fun emotion, is it? Have you ever done anything in your life or said anything in your life that you were afraid for someone else to find out? So many times we'll even say, well, I'll tell you this, but don't tell so-and-so. Because we're afraid of the reaction of so-and-so. Now, we're not afraid of the reaction of the one we're telling it to, because maybe they're a friend or a confidant or whatever, but we're certainly scared half to death that so-and-so is going to find out about it. So we very carefully cover our behinds before we say certain things to certain people, and then there's always the warning that goes with it. Now, is that always a bad thing? No. I'm just saying that fear is in us from top to bottom and start to finish about something. Now, sometimes there's good reason to fear that someone hears certain things. And sometimes there's a good reason that they don't need to hear it. But sometimes we need to maybe tell someone that we need to get it off our chest or we need to deal with it and they might help us or whatever. We need to talk about it to someone, but maybe we can't talk to the person that we're afraid would hear it. Now, that can be used for good and bad, see. It can be used as gossip. It can be scurrilous. It can be harmful and, de and uh, deleterious to someone else. Or sometimes it can be of good use and help them and strengthen them as well as you. So we have choices we have to make all the time of whether we say this or that or something else. And so we deal with fear. So anyway, they hid themselves. And the Lord God called Adam and said to him, Where are you? I mean, you're usually around when I, you come running. You're not afraid of me. I can't find you today. Where are you? And he said, I heard your voice in the garden, and I was afraid. Fear overcame me when I heard your voice, because I was naked, and I hid myself. Up to this time, he didn't know he was naked. Up to this time, he had not feared God. Now, he feared God. And he said, who told you? You were naked. You didn't know that. Who told you? Have you eaten of the tree wherever I commanded you that you should not eat? Boy, that must have instilled even more fear in Adam. 
Because it's not just fear of getting caught, it's fear of penalty as well. So, we're afraid to do it. Then we're afraid we'll get caught. Then we're afraid we'll get punished. If we do anything that could be in any way interpreted as wrong in our own mind and in our own conscience. The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me of the tree, and I did eat. Didn't even call her his wife. So that woman you gave me, she gave it to me, you know. It really wasn't my fault, Lord. It was that woman there. I don't know whether they had a couch or not, but he was on it from then on. The man said, oh yeah, and, and the Lord God said to the woman, he turned to her then and said, what is this that you've done? The woman said, the serpent beguiled me and I did eat. wasn't my fault. No, they start making blame now because they're afraid of the repercussions of what they've done. So I'm not going to admit it. Maybe I'll get off scot-free if I'll just blame it on somebody else. Your kids do it all the time, don't they? Johnny did it. Carolyn did it. I didn't do it. And they'll get very elaborate in their excuses as to why something happened. You know, I guess the cup just dropped itself, like the Spanish put it in their language. It's never anybody's fault that the cup just dropped itself. Broke itself. We like to pass blame along because of what? This very base emotion of fear. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this. Ah, there are consequences. Perhaps there is reason to fear. Now, God held the serpent foremost responsible. Because he knew, you know, your kids can argue about who did it, and you have to try to sort it out. But God had it all sorted out because He always knows. He sees everything, reads the thoughts. He knows, bottom line, who's guilty and who's not, and to the degree of guilt of each one of us. He, he has that down pat. He always knows. He ponders our hearts. Said to the serpent, Because you have done this, you are cursed above all cattle and above every beast of the field. Upon your belly shall you go, and dust shall you eat all the days of your life. Now, he's called the great serpent in other places, Satan. And we know that this is an analogy here. Uh, and maybe he even spoke through a snake. Because Satan can put his voice in different animals. Just as God used Balaam's ass and spoke through it. Uh, Satan could have spoken through a serpent as well. So these things are very possible. And a snake is now symbolic of Satan the devil. So the snake at that time might have had legs and it might have been quite appealing to look at. I don't know. On your belly shall you go and dust shall you eat all the days of your life. Now that's a pretty strong pronouncement right there. You and I walk on two hind legs, don't we? What if God told us you're going to crawl on your belly the rest of your life and all your days? I'd be in trouble. That'd be hard to get around. 
Ever tried it? Doing like a salamander trying to swirl along on your belly? I will put enmity between you and the woman. Now, I think there are analogies here that go to the church as well as the physical woman. So there's, there's much in here that we will not explore. That isn't the purpose of the moment. And between your seed and her seed. But this is a huge punishment. And their fear and their shame was justified. Uh, it shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heels. Snakes like to bite us around the feet and we like to stomp on their heads. It's not a very good relationship that people have with snakes. I hate snakes. I don't like snakes. Uh, I've always had a fear of being bitten by a snake, especially a poisonous one. As a child, we had rattlesnakes and copperheads and so on around, and I never did want to get bit. It scared me. So if I saw a poisonous snake, I killed it. I don't kill non-poisonous snakes. I noticed two or three around here have been killed along the road, some of you walking, I suppose. And those aren't poisonous snakes. Those are gopher snakes or rat snakes, depending on what you want to call them. They have a narrow head, and they don't have any rattles on their tails. But in some cases, I think you've thought that they were poisonous and were rattlesnakes, and they weren't. Even a non-rattler can rattle its tail if it's in the leaves, and it can make a noise. And you need to know the difference. Uh, for what it's worth, those gopher snakes that are here eat mice, and they do a great deal to keep rattlesnakes away. So they're our friends. But you know, just the idea of snake sometimes engenders in people a fear, a concern, and a hatred. And it doesn't matter whether it's poisonous or non-poisonous. Now, Satan was pretty poisonous. Not all snakes, physical snakes, are. And we don't need to fear them. But just because of what was said here, most people, most of the time, have a certain fear of reptiles, especially snakes. In some cases, they've overcome it and they play with them, but that's a different matter. But as a general rule, this is the case. It's raining and that's lovely. Hope it doesn't get so loud you can't hear. To the woman he said, Now, here's a pretty strong punishment that comes as a result of disobeying God. See, as long as they didn't disobey God, they did not live in fear. They didn't know fear, didn't understand fear. But when they disobeyed God, fear became a very real emotion. And they had to deal with fear of all kinds for the rest of their lives, including fear of death. And they eventually died. To the woman, verse 16, he said, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. In sorrow shall you bring forth children. That doesn't mean she'd be sad to have children. It means she would look to childbirth as a painful, difficult, and even terrifying experience, especially the first time. In sorrow... In the conception, she lives with a monthly sorrow, for the most part. Thank you, Eve. Because of Eve's sin, and because we've all sinned ever since. But God pronounced something pretty strong here that would be a constant reminder. 
And when it came time to multiply and to have children, that there would be pain and sorrow involved in that. Makes life more difficult. Now, you think that's bad. It gets worse. Your desire shall be to your husband, and he shall rule over you. Now, through the last 6,000 years, men have been stronger and bigger than women, and they have used that power, that strength, to abuse, to misuse, to lord it over women. And women, for the most part of history, have been chattel, almost as slaves, to do the bidding of the great master on the couch. That has been the experience of most women throughout most of history. We've had a liberation more recently in more modern times, from that, and we went from the frying pan into the fire. That's a different subject. We'll go there at some other time. But women have been misused and abused throughout most of history. To Adam, he said, because you have hearkened to the voice of your wife, okay, you blamed it on her, but you're the one that listened, buddy. You're the one that did what she said. I'm holding you responsible. You've eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, saying, You shall not have eat, it, eat of it. Cursed is the ground for your sake. In sorrow shall you eat of it all the days of your life. He took it right back to eating. Eating of that fruit of that tree seemed to be a very pleasant thing. So he made eating thereafter very difficult for mankind made it very hard for him to produce something to eat. Up to that time, it had been automatic. The trees of the garden were there. The fruit was there. Easy to pluck it, easy to eat it. Then it became difficult. Now we have fear of drought. We have fear of failed crops. We have fear of diseased crops. We have fear of the marketing of crops, whether we'll get the right price for it. We have fear worldwide now of whether there will be enough food to eat. Many, many articles are coming out. And God has proclaimed that in the end time, if we didn't obey God, there would be drought and famine and disease. Now, we're getting way ahead of the story here in Genesis. But he says, from now on, you're going to have these problems. And if you don't obey me, it's going to get even worse. And here at the end... It's getting worse. Do we have anything to fear? <laughs> yeah, we do. Thorns and thistles shall it bring forth to you, and you shall eat the herb of the field. We're living in a place right now where there are tumbleweeds that stick us, cactus thorns that stick us. We try to garden and there are difficulties involved and all kinds of plants and animals that don't go well with gardens. You know, maybe there's a reason for that. Maybe God brought us out here to this place 
so that we might come out of our little cocoons in our cities and our, well, they weren't like mansions, most of us at that time, but so we would come away from what we thought was pretty much the good life when we thought that way, to live in conditions that remind us of Genesis 3. Difficult conditions. Now, the world is going to starve to death. About a third of them. I submit to you that mankind has not yet learned to obey God. Adam and Eve started out by disobeying, and we as a whole around the earth are still in that same mode. We have not budged from it. So the things that he originally pronounced as curses are going to be magnified and multiplied many times over here at the end. And maybe we're here as a reminder of that curse that God put on mankind. And as we try to garden here, be reminded that we need to obey God. Now, I believe if we do obey God, He's going to turn these thorns and thistles and this desert into a rose. He's going to make springs in the desert and a highway for God's people to come where they will be taken care of when the world goes through the privation and starving and famine and disease that they're about to enter. Already have entered, but it's going to get far, far worse. So you see, God has a method and a reason for what He does. We may look around and say, well, God, why would you do this to us? Maybe we need to think it through and find out why He did this to us. Maybe we need to understand, not just gripe, not just complain. Now, Israel did that when they came out of Egypt. They didn't think it through. Why is God putting us through what He's putting us through? God told him He would deliver them, and when He did, by a series of miracles, things got better? No. Things immediately got worse. In Egypt, they had leeks and onions. They had to make bricks, and then bricks without straw. But they had houses, and they had water, and they had food. And God delivered them, and things immediately got worse. And what did they do? They feared, and they complained, and griped. Instead of thinking it through and coming up with the right conclusion. They turned on the one who had just, by miracles, delivered them when he let things get worse for them. Now, in some respects, when you came here, 
things got worse for you. You may have given up a job. You may have given up a house. And you're out here trying to pick up a thousand dollar trailer that wasn't worth that. Things were worse. Employment was scarce. Hard to grow a garden. Didn't have anything to feed a cow if you had one. Now let's think it through. Some are afraid to leave what they have. They're afraid of broken relationships. They're afraid of what people will think. They have all kinds of fears. They're afraid they'll have to leave their husband or wife or children behind. They're afraid they can't get a job. They're afraid of this, that, or the other thing. We are full of fears. Now, I think there's some pretty important instruction here for us. We'll pay attention to it. But if God makes things worse for us, what do we do? Turn on God? Or do we say, I wonder why God did this, and then maybe go to His Word and see examples of what God did and then ultimately why He did it, why He put them through fear, through privation, through want, through need, through deteriorating conditions. He always has. Because He needs to know if you will be motivated by fear of the unknown or of the known, whether you will fear to leave father, mother, brother, sister, home, children, lands, crops, and follow Him and trust Him and believe in Him, or if out of fear you will cling to those things you're afraid to lose. It's a very basic lesson for human beings. Very basic. Will we be just and walk in faith that God has our best interests in mind with our health, with our wealth, with our well-being? Or will we seek other solutions from people, from Satan, from science, from wherever? The very basic question that we must all answer is we will walk forward trusting God with everything we are, have, and could be, or will we shrink back in fear of what could happen, or what we might lose, or what we might fail to gain? There is no more basic question than that. So to answer that question, God will promise you the world and give you the thorns to see how you react. To see if you will continue to believe in what He has told you, or at the first sign of trouble you will turn tail and run. Ship captains have to be very careful in choosing their crews. They need brave, bold, Talented, skilled sailors. 
Because if they get out on the ocean and things are nice and suddenly turn ugly, fair-weather sailors will not do them much good. Sailors who are fearful and curl up in a fetal position in their bed when the wind begins to blow and the waves come across the deck aren't much good in saving you from the storm. Are we fair weather or foul weather sailors? God wants to know if we're going to jump ship at the first sign of trouble or the second sign of trouble. Or do we have a deep, abiding trust in Him that He'll see it through? Christ used that very example Himself, didn't He? The disciples were on the boat. He was out in the boat with them out here on the lake. And the wind came up. And they got very fearful. He was taking a nap. Quite a contrast. The wind's blowing. The ship's about to sink. The disciples are scared half to death. They wake him up. Save us, save us. What are we going to do? The ship's going to sink. <coughs> he said, take it easy. It'll be all right. Went back to sleep. Now, most of us would be quite miffed at that point. He doesn't even care about us. He goes right back to sleep. Lazarus is dead and he won't even come. Different story, but same emotion. Oh, you of little faith. Now, what was the difference? He believed that his Father in heaven did not want him to die and would preserve him from it, and he didn't have to worry about the boat sinking, even though there were terrible, it was a terrible storm blowing. They did not trust either him or their Father in heaven, and were afraid they were going to die. There is the difference between walking in faith and walking in fear. Now, their fear of death became unreasonable. You see, faith is not based on conditions around you. Faith is based on promises of God that He said He will take care of. Now, you and I have read many, many promises in Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, the Minor Prophets, of how God is going to bless His remnant church in the end. But you know, to date, we have seen very little of His miraculous intervention that would make it easy for us to believe that all those things are going to come to pass. And in fact, He has made it difficult for us by moving us out of nice green places where there were rivers and waters and jobs into a desert situation where there are thorns and thistles and things that bite. Not as bad as there are some places, but hard to raise a crop, hard to raise animals, hard to find a job. And I believe he did it 
on purpose, deliberately, with a plan in mind. To see if we would fear and go back to our leeks and onions or whatever it is we liked. Or whether we will move boldly in faith, believing that God will do the things He said He will do. Now Moses had promised Israel a land of promise. He had promised them that God was going to take them to a land of milk and honey and freedom from oppression and false and bad government. That He would restore the blessings of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to them. He promised that. But was He going to give it to them without knowing whether they would be thankful, appreciative, and whether they felt they could trust Him? No. Now, He showed them some things, but then He backed off and showed them some other things, like thirst and hunger. He tried them. He tested them first. Will you give in to your fears or will you live by faith? And they gave in to their fears. So he said, all right, you're going to wander around out here till you all die. And it'll be your children that go in. I'm still going to do it, but it'll be your children, not you. Now, there's a pretty powerful lesson there for us, isn't there? God has made us promises, brethren. Will we walk forward boldly in faith, trusting Him that when the time is right, when the conditions are right, when our attitudes are right, when we have been tried, tested, and proved, that those promises and those blessings will be fulfilled. They're written in God's Word. Can He back His Word up? Will He back His Word up? And you know, the answer to that lies within us. Every individual here. But He has to know. He tried Abraham until He said, Now I know. I'm not guessing, I'm not thinking, I'm not calculating the percentages. Yeah, Abraham, I think he's 90% there. When he raised that knife to slice his son's throat, God said, now I know. 100% Abraham, that you will trust me and will not shrink back no matter what I tell you to do. That's what he was looking for. I'll bet you the angels in heaven sang hallelujah when Abraham raised that knife. In Abraham's mind, it was as good as done. And don't forget Isaac. He wasn't blubbering and crying and screaming either. He too was tested. That's why we're to look to our forefathers. That's why we're to turn our hearts to them. 
so that we can be as they were. God wants to know about you and me. I want God someday to look at me and say, Daryl, now I know. I don't know what I'll have to go through before God can say that of me. I don't know what you're going to have to go through. But God needs, God wants to know that about every last one of us. Is He mine? Is she all mine? Forever. Would he or she ever turn from me and go the way of Satan the devil? Is this person genuine all the way through? True blue. No hypocrisy. No lying. No double-mindedness. No rebellion. How much do we have to be tested before God can say, I know. That one will be faithful to me forevermore. He has to deal with the fear that you might rebel. He doesn't know. That's why He ponders our hearts. He watches us. He lets us go through things. Case in point, he sicked Satan directly on Job. I think God had a pretty good idea. He was pretty sure about Job. I bet he was 99% sure about Job, but he didn't know. And he had to find out that last 1%. And Job went through an awful lot. Far more than you and I have even begun to experience. We think we have it tough sometimes, don't we? We complain and caterwaul and gripe about things. Instead of being thankful for what we have, we gripe about what we don't have. And we ain't seen nothing yet like Paul or Peter or James or John saw, like Isaiah or David saw, we haven't seen anything yet. We're about to see the world turn right upside down in front of us, and we're about to see Satan and the men of this world try to kill every last one of us. And they will hate us with a passion. And there will be great opportunity for fear. Who do we fear? Man or God? I think that's enough of an introduction to this. I think we now need, with that priming, to may, maybe examine different elements of fear. 
Because, to say some of the things I just said, just makes you scared. It makes you fear. Now, we need to learn to deal with fear. We need to learn to fear the right things and not fear the wrong things. So it takes some education for us to come to see how to handle fear. Because we all have it every day of our lives and we are never without it. From moment to moment you fear something. If it's no more than whether you're about to slam your finger in the door. And it gets a lot worse from there. How do we deal with it? How do we handle it? How do we turn it into good? Because it is probably one of the commonest, if not the commonest, emotion that we have in our lives. Uh, A negative emotion. So, let's leave it at that for today and let's try to educate ourselves from God's Word on fear, how to handle it, what to do about it, how to harness it for good instead of for evil. We'll continue that later.